What's up, everybody? This is Grant at Cause Artist. Today, we are talking with Jessica Santana. She's the co-founder and CEO of New York on Tech. And we recorded this in New York at the Teach for America headquarters. And it's an, if you guys live in New York, I mean, it's, a, it's an amazing place if you get a chance to go there. It's just breeding creativity and all this innovative uh, educational atmosphere. It, it's pretty incredible place. So pretty awesome to see that. And it was great to talk to, to Jessica and see what they're up to and see what the future uh, for them holds it's going to be it's going to be pretty pretty interesting so new york new york on tech's mission is to prepare the next generation of technology technology leaders emerging from nyc they provide low opportunity students with the resources necessary to pursue careers and degrees in technology their flagship program is the tech flex leaders program it's an immersive experience for New York high school students. Uh, the program offers scholars access to academic, professional, and leadership opportunities in technology. Students are also paired with mentors working in high technology industries that help them build their confidence and leadership skills. The work has been recognized by TechCrunch, BET, Black Enterprise, and the Huffington Post. We talk about her history and how she got where she is. Um, she's a graduate of Syracuse University, bachelor's degree and master's degree. And she has just a, a really interesting roadmap of, of how she came from a low income family and all of a sudden got a job in technology. And as she says in the interview, you know, her family's life totally changed off of her one person just having a job in technology. Um, so she used that as fuel to, to start something where other kids where the, the community she came from and other kids in, in low-income areas in New York have a, a great opportunity to learn the technology industry and learn how to get involved in it and how to have a career in it and how to change not only their path, but also their family's path and future. Hope you guys enjoyed the conversation and have a great week. Thanks. Let's just start with uh, your path to, to how you became co-founder of New York on Tech and its overall vision and mission um, from the beginning. Yes. So, um, you know, I was the first person in my family to graduate from college and I got my degree in technology and ultimately I started my career in the industry. And I think when I was working in technology, literally six months after graduation, my family's household income went from like <laughs> one number right. to a number that was tremendously right. like four or five times a right. uh, number that they've ever seen. Sure. And I think until I was an adult and I was like in the workforce, um, I wasn't thinking about salary or what a living mm -hmm. wage looked like until mm -hmm. I got to the point where I actually had access to money and it made me question like one what does economic mobility mean mm -hmm. for women and people of color and people from marginalized backgrounds that find themselves on a career in innovation and then two how do I get more people that look like me here because as it stands I'm the usually the only woman on my team the only mm -hmm. person of color on my team or sometimes the only woman of color on my team right. um, <laughs> and I had really big questions as to what are the things that um, 
make young people in disenfranchised communities not be able to access this mm-hmm. kind of content. And so in 2014, my co-founder and I, we were literally at a Starbucks. I was venting to him about like a microaggression that happened. And he was like, you know, like this sucks. Like we're from New York City. We right. know that there's a plethora of talent out there. Yeah, for sure. So at this time, it's not about whether or not there's talent. It's about whether or not there's enough opportunity. Mm-hmm. Let's do something about it. So we created the blueprint on napkins. This was 2014? This is 2014. Um, Labor Day 2014. So we created this blueprint on napkins, and then we ended up asking like a couple of our friends who did uh, Teach for America, like, hey, do you think your school will partner with us? Right. We got 20 students really fast, built the curriculum really fast, and then piloted the program with 20 students. And then six months in, that is when we um, got our first investment that essentially kicked us off full time. Um, but in terms of the story of getting there, it really came out of a place of service and wanting to give back and making sure that I was the change that I wanted to see along with my co-founder um, in not making excuses about whether or not people can be successful right. in technology. We think we we know that they can when sure. they're given the appropriate resources. What's what was your path that you took to to go to college, right, and and have and go for a tech degree, so to speak? What was that yeah. like for you? If there wasn't, you know, like you said, there wasn't yeah. these opportunities now that you've created for other people. So how did you get to that point? Yeah, for sure. So you know, I grew up in a low income community in Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. I went to public schools my entire life, um, and up to that point, no one in my family would have graduated from a four year college or university degree program. And no one in my family even found themselves in a career in corporate America. Right. Um, they were all blue collar workers, mm-hmm. manufacturing, sure. um, et cetera. And I got access to my first computer when I was like in middle school. Mm-hmm. And so I always I was always tinkering with things on the computer. And then when MySpace came around, I was teaching myself how to code because I sure. wanted to have a really awesome MySpace page layout. Little HTML CSS. Yeah, little HTML CSS. I had my rather than like top eight, I think I customized to have like a top sixty at one point in time. <laughs> nice. It was so hard to have just a top eight. And so I remember thinking to myself during that time, like this is so cool, but I never mm-hmm. knew that I could make a career sure. out of it. No one in my school told me that the things I was learning was an employable skill. Right. Um, and that I could take it further. So naturally I did things that I thought I, you know, could access, like accounting. Um right. so right. I I majored in accounting in college, um, but all of my work in college um, in terms of like full time work was me like side hustling and finally learning that I could monetize this skill by mm-hmm. liaising with a few nonprofits gotcha. in the in the area. So of just where like my freelancing is. a little bit. Yeah, a little freelancing. <clears throat> um, I did some web development and that's when it was like, oh, like I actually should not accept right. this full time offer to go into accounting. I should go get my master's in technology. Nice. And so that's what, um, you know, made me make the pivot but there was literally nothing in between like high school and college that said you just had to figure you just it go out. straight in yeah, <laughs> yeah. I had to figure it out um, and I didn't want other people to have yeah. to figure it out I wanted it to be a more linear path yeah much easier what was the where'd you get your message from what was it just in technology or was it you know database engineering was it 
as a specific thing or was it just technology in yeah. general? Yeah, so I did my undergrad in business at Syracuse University and then I stayed there because I ended up getting mm-hmm. a, a fellowship with J.P. Morgan Chase mm-hmm. under their Global Enterprise Technology Program and I got my master's in information management and under that um, there were different specializations. And so I had gotcha. a specialization in cybersecurity, nice. um, digital strategy and project management. Awesome, awesome. What's when you guys drew up the idea on the napkin yeah um what were the steps after that that you took because it's easy to sort of like have an idea right yeah those are a dime a dozen they come and go like it's it's crazy um so how did you you and your co-founder look at that and say okay we actually have an idea yeah like let's go do something about it so what were those steps like and, and who did you go out and talk to to say hey we want to start a tech nonprofit. <laughs> yeah. So it was so interesting. So after that happened, um, we literally went, we were super scratch, scrappy. We went to mm-hmm. Google Drive yep. and we were like, okay, like let's just write some ideas down on a document. Sure. There wasn't any like strategic plan or anything yeah. like that at the time. We did do some surveys with students to understand where the gaps were and how to design the program. Right. Um, but, you know, in that work, we realized that there was no one that was doing what we were doing doing in a way that felt like it was a long-term and deep investment Mm -hmm, Um, mm -hmm. and so what we realized that in order for in order for us to change like the the trajectory for students in a way that feels like it's really um, a three, well, not 360 because you end up the same place, but a 180, <laughs> um, you know, circle. Like, we realized we need to make a deep investment. So on Google Drive, we started, like, putting spreadsheets together. Um, our first step was realizing that we would need to fundraise. And so we contacted right. someone on LinkedIn that went to our university um, that was working at Etsy to see if they would give us space to host a fundraise. She was like, yes, absolutely. She ended up becoming a mentor for the program. We ended up raising like, I think it was like a little less than Mm -hmm. $10,000. And it was all through ticket sales on on a grant bright. And yeah, I mean, I remember those being like the initial steps. It was just like, we have to recruit some kids, dive into our network, put some pen to paper on Google Drive, and then just start reaching out to folks. But none of this was done in a way that felt um, like there was a whole there was a big yeah, strategic yeah, plan in yeah, place. Yeah. It was just <laughs> yeah. like, let's just get this first thing done. And there was yeah. no real vision at that point. It was just yeah. kind of adrenaline. You were just like... <laughs> yeah, no, it was just adrenaline and literally wanting to provide opportunity. I yeah. think that was the only thing we were thinking about. We weren't thinking about um, like fundraising, getting grants. Right. Like, you just didn't know that world yet. We didn't like, know the world. Yeah. 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 It didn't. It, that world didn't appear to us until like maybe seven months after the program kicked off when I got into that fellowship at, uh, that basically allowed us to take the work full time. Nice. So then once you got into the to the fellowship about seven, eight months after you guys started, mm-hmm. you got into a fellowship. And through that fellowship, that was another educational path for you. And then after that was done, they decided to, to fund Yes. The nonprofit. yes, exactly. So we ended up getting into a program called Camelback. Um, they basically seed education entrepreneurs um, all around the country mm-hmm. and they give them, I think, $50,000 at the time. It was $50,000 with the contingency that you take the work full time to see how far uh, you can actually gotcha. take it. So I was still working in tech and doing New York right. Tech on the side. And I remember thinking like, well, I don't think I'll be any less employable if I leave for a year and try this. And so what ended up happening was that 
I left. <laughs> and I was like, if I say no to this fellowship, I'll never know where I right. can take this work. Um, and then a few um, years later, or years, a few months later, my co-founder, he ended up coming full time as well. And so he ended up leaving his job. And then that's where everything started formalizing into more of a of a nonprofit business as opposed to like a nonprofit right. idea. Yeah, that's kind of a transition. I think a lot mm-hmm. of nonprofits are taking is to be sustainable, right? And to, right. to get to get the the level of impact you want to get to, you kind of have to run it like a business. For sure. You know? So that's what about your let's let's throw a little uh, goodwill to your co-founder. Can you tell us a little bit more yeah. about how you guys met and yes. uh, and how and how he you know he has he has helped so far. So Evan and I met uh, summer 29, uh, 2009. We met at each other at an Ernst & Young Leadership Conference. And when we looked at each other, we knew we were, uh, we looked familiar. And it right. was because we went to the, both both, both went to the same university. Um, he was a rising sophomore. I was a rising junior at the time. And immediately after the conference, we were taking the train to head back into Brooklyn, where we're from. Okay. Um, and when we were about to say bye to each other, we realized we were getting off at at the same stop so it just so <laughs> happens that him and i literally grew up about maybe five blocks wow. away from each other but we didn't even meet until um we got to college and at specifically at this conference and so because i think we've sh- we've um lived shared experiences mm-hmm. and we've seen how our communities have changed and we have very similar trajectories him and i instantly bonded and created a really strong um foundation for a friendship that led to a few side projects when we yeah. were in college and then ultimately as we got older we realized that we were very much moved by you know changing our communities and you know coming back to where we're from as opposed to feeling like mm-hmm. we need to choose between being great and yeah. being well um and and then doing work that really matters to us. And so he's been a really instrumental role in, um, he's played a really instrumental role in helping us achieve what we've achieved over the last five years. And I'm like extremely grateful to have that kind of (laughs) partnership because a lot of people say entrepreneurship is lonely. And if I'm being honest with you, I've never really felt alone uh, because of the fact that him and I have a solid like partnership in place. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So when you guys got the the donation made after the after yeah. the fellowship, right? Mm-hmm. So that's really what kicked off you guys going in full time. Both of you, both of you went in full time at that point. No, I went full okay. time first. Gotcha. Um, and I think that at the time it really just made sense for me to go first because the fellowship only required one person to gotcha. go first. Okay. I wanted to take that risk, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> and I don't know that I needed him to take that risk with me at the time because then we would have been like sure. two broke entrepreneurs yep, yep. <laughs> trying to figure it out. Where I was just like, "Hey, like, let me take the risk, and I'll report back yeah. <laughs> whether or not we should do this." <laughs> um, but he was ready to jump in with me, and I was yeah. like, "Honestly, I really don't think that's a good look. If anything, what would make our partnership stronger right now is if you stayed in the tech right. industry yeah. and I stayed in education and figure out how." we merged the two. Mm. So like the first um, couple of months where we were like leading these dual lives as founders, but him still working full time, he did a lot of research internally at his company and at other companies to try to figure out what does corporate social responsibility look like. And then I took the role of like, how do you really build like a board and how do you become 
like a non-profit and monetize and grants and all that stuff. So it worked at the time. But ultimately, you know, we uh, continued to get funding and support to the point where it was like, all right, now you need to come um, in order for us to grow. So he ended up coming on full time later on. That's great. Um, So let's talk about a little bit about the program itself. Yes. Because it probably maybe changed over time, right? From your initial sort of 20 students, right, to, Mm -hmm. to what it is now. So what was that maturation like and and what is the actual program? Because tech is is a big thing, right? Is it are they learning JavaScript? Are they learning coding languages? Are they Mm -hmm. learning how to, you know, develop car technology? Like what's what are the actual like programs and and what's being taught? Yes, for sure. So when we first started, we kicked off with just weekly workshops on various technology topics. It wasn't necessarily like a full-blown curriculum where it was supposed to be a portfolio of projects or anything Mm -hmm. like that. It was literally just an exposure program that was introducing students to different concepts and then pairing them with one-to-one mentors and um, is this going to, to a place? Days. Is this going to like a place where you say, hey, we're going to gather here? Or is it you going yes. to schools? No, no, no. We were, it was an out of school time program. Gotcha. Okay. Um, now it's different and we sure. do lots of things. But back then it was just an out of school time program on Saturdays, cohort of mm. 20 kids. Uh, so they really wanted to be there then, huh? Yeah, they really <laughs> wanted to be there. Um, and... Yeah, so that's all it was in the beginning. And then as time passed and we leaned on the surveys and the data in the beginning that said like kids actually don't just want exposure content. They really want to build deep technical skills that their schools or their communities are not currently providing. Then we need to become that next step for them as opposed to feeling like we're maybe repeating some of the things that other organizations might be doing and hosting like one or two day workshops that really for the communities that we serve don't change their life trajectory in a really impactful or meaningful way. And so after that first year, um, we professionalized the program a lot more. Uh, What we ended up doing was establishing a nine-month curriculum. In this curriculum, students are learning front and back end web development in the first semester. And then in the second semester, they're learning mobile development. Um, After the nine months is over, the students get to do paid internships with our corporate partners over the summer. So they they get to interview with the New York on Tech Network of employer partners. Um, They get to choose which roles that they want to sign up for. The employer partners um, pay them over the summer, so all the internships are paid. And all of this is happening before they're leaving high school. So we're working with juniors and seniors. Um, After that second year, we added an additional program um, called Tech 360. Tech 360 is a 10-week course in a shorter time frame for a younger period of students. This program, I'm a younger population of students, this program allows us to build a pipeline into the nine-month program. Okay. And it also allows us to hit, hit students in a more scalable way. Okay. The nine-month program, what ends up happening is that, um, you know, because it's deep and intense, it's yeah. not as scalable. You won't have sure. millions of right. students um, in reach. But with the Tech 360 program, because it's shorter in time, frame we get to do more cycles of it throughout the year Um, so this program runs twice a year Um, it's a front-end web development course and the interesting part of this program and all the programs actually is that it's competition based so the technical instruction is a training but it's really like a year-long competition or a semester-long competition where the students are being paired um, with a client brief of a mock client whether it's a nonprofit organization or it's a 
you know, a social impact startup or maybe a small business, right. like a lemonade shop in Queens. Yeah. Um, and then they basically create um, a web application or mobile application for these clients okay. um, that shows their mastery of the skill. And then they pitch at the end in their respective cohort and then against other cohorts of New York on tech students across the city. Huh. So wow. that's how that happens. <laughs> um, we also have now a our first non-engineering course, which okay. is a summer program. It's called User Experience Design. It's focusing on the non-technical yeah. aspects of technology. You know, some of the things got things got to look good. Yeah, things yeah. got to look good. And another <laughs> thing, I think there's a misconception that there's just like a lack of engine, lack of diversity within the software engineering fields. And we actually have discovered that there's a lack of diversity in hybrid roles in technology. Sure. There's yeah. not a lot of people of color in UX, UX design yeah. either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, for us, it's thinking about what are the in-demand skills that employers are hiring for and then continue to create trainings on there. Um, Road mapping out what more trainings will look like. We're looking at creating cyber curriculums. We're looking at creating um, curriculums around data science. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we're also looking at establishing a program around um, artificial intelligence and robotic process automation. So those are the three things you know, that we're rolling out. You add, too. We'll say it again? Media. Oh, they and media. media yes. courses. No, that's there's so not true. A, I mean, there's not a lot of, you know, people, a lot of people, just like how you say, like, students don't understand the tech world, but students also don't understand media. the media part of, of right. which is all technology-based, too. I, yeah. I had to learn UX design. I had to learn For sure. all HTML, CSS code. I had to build a website myself mm-hmm. and understand how to rank in Google. Like all these different things that go into, you know, building a digital media company is all tech based. Oh, for right? sure. So maybe we can talk about that. Yeah, no, we should totally talk about that. And I completely agree with you. It's interesting because a lot of our employer partners, they are media companies. Right. So the students are doing like engineering and mm-hmm. development mm-hmm. Um, for online media platforms but since we're not like industry specific and we're more skill specific um, I think that that is interesting I would love to see how we can like pilot a content creation program for our students because they create content all the time some of it is good some of it is not so good well I can teach (laughs) them how to make it really good though right like we can can come up with something that that shows them how to how to make it really good but so how do how does it work is it still off-site on weekends programs or is it embedded now in the schools? How does that work? So it it happens in various ways Mm -hmm. now. So we have out-of-school time programs that are embedded at companies um, that the people who teach those courses are the engineers of those organizations. Um, We have programs that are happening within schools and we have partnerships with other nonprofit organizations. So really the content stays the same in terms Mm. of uh, what the students are learning, but the experiences differ in terms of how we deliver it to uh, other organizations. So if we're partnering with a nonprofit, maybe like in Harlem, Um, They'll recruit the students. They'll find the students. They'll give us space. They'll give us laptops. Um, And then our job is to come in as the delivery partner or the instructional partner. Um, And then when we're running our own courses, we're handling the entire Mm -hmm. life cycle of this, where we're running, you know, recruiting students, enrolling.
involving them, doing parent orientations, etc. So all of this, what it really comes down to is who is funding you for a project and what is the expectation of that project. When we're partnering with organizations um, in Harlem, they usually have a budget. What they mm-hmm. don't have is the expertise. Gotcha. Where we're running our own programs, that means that that is a fully funded project sure. that someone is entrusting us to take from start to finish. Gotcha. Um, and it's basically like how we've been able to establish our credibility in this space by having our own uh, programs that show the efficacy of our curriculum and what we can do. How has how has it been working with schools? Because like mm-hmm. you said, when you went to school, like you kind of didn't know they just public schools in general just don't teach sort of they have a curriculum that's given by the state right it's Mm -hmm. it's very kind of strict this is it it's very bland it's not innovative right Mm -hmm. so when you go work with these schools now do you see that they're more open to creating new curriculum around this type of stuff Mm because one i mean they have to right i mean it's this is how kids are going to get jobs is it's necessary Mm -hmm. it's like reading and writing now it's Mm -hmm. technology i mean it's it's a basic foundation that you need to learn Right. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. I'm convinced that like if people are not teaching technology as they are trying to treat math literacy right. and reading literacy uh, within schools, then we have a really big problem. I think the issue is that it really comes down to the leadership of the school and as well as the leadership of the districts and mm. who is managing educational policy. Like there's some schools that we work with that are completely on board. They dedicate resources, space, find students, enroll them. Um, You know, they make sure that there's appropriate equipment. They make sure that, you know, there's a point of contact that's going to be the point of contact for the partnership. And then you have the schools that are just like, we need to get something in here because it's like, we need, we know we need to do this. We just don't know. We don't know the first step of how to even do it. Yeah. Right. Um, That's where you guys come in. And that's where we come in. Um, And then there are some schools where, um, I would say some people in leadership are not convinced that all students need to learn, gotcha. you know, technology skills. And because of the fact that we're operating in spaces where a lot of these schools are under-resourced and they don't have the budgets a lot of times, they're constricted a lot of times to teach towards things that will measure a school's success, mm. right? So if, if we're saying, hey, principal, I'm measuring your success by how good your students are graduating from high school, where they go to college, you know, math scores, literary scores, yeah. scores, did they pass the regions, but there's not necessarily a policy in place that says, you know, I'm also now measuring you on the effectiveness of your computer science mm-hmm. curriculum, then there's really no incentive gotcha. for the principal or the leadership of the school to say, like, we need to have a strong computer science program mm-hmm. here. The Mm -hmm. only time that usually happens is if the principal is also convinced or the leadership is also convinced that this is something that they need to do regardless of whether or not it's coming from some kind of mandate. And most principals probably come from an educational background rather than a technology background. Right. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're they're educated Mm -hmm. one way too, right? They go through the Mm -hmm. education system and, you know, they get their master's in education or Mm -hmm. English, right? So they haven't kind of connected with the tech world or introduced like you did, right? You kind of right. didn't know either, but you kind of fell upon it and mm-hmm. you got introduced to this whole different world mm-hmm. to where a lot of these leaders, by no fault of their own, they were just kind of like you, right? They just yeah. they just didn't see the side of, of the industry, one, because it kind of just erupted a little bit, right? right. I mean, we don't really have like two decades of, of kind of right. technology being 
everything that it is now. Mm-hmm. Um, so how many kids do you guys have now in the yeah. program across, <laughs> I guess, everything you guys do? Yeah. So on an annual basis, we're working with about a thousand students um, per year. Mm-hmm. And it's all in different ways, either through our partnerships or through our own programs. Um, to date, we've worked with more than 1,500 students. Um, but this coming school year, we'll finally hit the mark of working with a thousand students per year. So mm-hmm. it's really, really exciting. What's the uh, what's success look like for you guys when you get Mm -hmm. like a a child in right they apply and they get accepted is it okay success to us is them getting a job right getting Mm -hmm. a tech job when they graduate Mm -hmm. high school or when they graduate college do some just not go to college and maybe go to like a tech boot camp Mm -hmm. with the skills that you taught them hey i just maybe want to do like a tech boot camp and just really skip like four years of college and have Mm -hmm. no debt Right, for and then sure. go work for for a company. So I guess it's there's probably different phases of success, but mm-hmm. what does it look like from from your end? Yeah, for sure. So the way that we determine success at New York on Tech is both in the short term and then in the long term. Mm-hmm. So in the long term, we're looking that the students master the skills in the program, that they get internships with our employer partners, and that our employer partners actually report back positive feedback mm-hmm. about the student's performance on the internship itself to determine whether or not they were effective in that role. Um, we're also determining whether we're successful if they're either enrolling in a college computer science program mm-hmm. after our programs and um, and or whether or not they decided to go straight into the industry or an, another adult-oriented technical education right. program like a general assembly yep. or a Perscolas. So that's what we're measuring in the short term. In the long term, our goal is that within the time frame of um, a student completing the New York on Tech program and potentially completing a college or university degree, that they have obtained a career in the industry mm-hmm. and that we have actually converted them to want to come back to their communities mm. um, and actually volunteer. That okay. has not been proven yet for us because yeah. of the fact that this is the first year that we're even going to have a graduating class of students who are leaving the New York on Tech program as seniors in college. Uh, um, okay. And so we're still measuring that. We're only five years old. Uh, but I think that as time passes, we'll know what the long term and yeah. longitudinal data looks like. It's just right now we you know, sure, our just first 20 students are now graduating. Wow. Yeah. Do you see when you guys talk to, uh, you know, these big companies that that need engineers and do they want them to go to a four year degree? Do they still value that more than a person that does New York on tech and maybe does like a coding boot camp for, for a year? Do they still weigh like a four year de- four year degree from a college more than strictly like something like a, a real just boss of the wall boot camp and then they want to go mm-hmm. straight work for a company do you see the companies liking one thing or, not, or another another yeah i really think it depends on the company so mm-hmm. i think i'm convinced that um at this point i would like to believe that everyone knows that there has to be multiple pathways right for young people to get into the workforce yep. Um, what I'm not convinced about, though, is whether or not everyone has created a strategy mm. at their companies 
to leave that to right. happen. Right. And I think that right now it's very interesting because the conversation around diversity and inclusion and talent um, and the future of work has very much been uh, centralized as, you know, we need to remove, you know, the degree requirement and just get students from high school to a vocational school and mm-hmm. then ultimately right. into the jobs because college isn't working. Right. Um, but I also believe that that's not necessarily true because there are students who graduate from four-year colleges and universities, and they're also getting jobs. Sure. And they're also getting six figures yeah. as well. I think the question becomes, how are companies now thinking about creating pathways for everyone, and how are they going to dismantle the systems that they've internally established over the last right. couple of decades that don't allow that to happen Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and I find that with the companies at New York on tech some of them are fully on board ready to dismantle some of them are just very resistant because there are inherent biases still associated with students who don't have degrees right and there are also inherent biases that happen once students who don't have degrees degrees do get to the workforce where you maybe have them in and they're making like 70 thousand seventy five thousand but because they don't have the degree there's like a lack of upward mobility for Mm, them within the organization so i do think that um our partners um many of them want diversity and they want to have inclusive environments but everyone is still figuring out the path towards achieving that for their own organizations and it's going to require a lot of reflection and a lot of questioning on you know what are we doing right what are we doing wrong and for the things that are we we're doing wrong are we ready to actually overhaul these yeah. things to change that's things? a big lift <laughs> yeah, yeah it's a really big lift the um one of the questions that i always I always like to ask in in sort of these in the nonprofit sector, a lot of it is focused on educating, you know, middle school students, high school students, college students. But like we said before, there's kind of a whole entire generation of adults that Mm -hmm. have been left behind. Right. So you have the age of probably, you know, maybe 35 to 55, let's say. Right. That the workforce and just technology has just been so fast, right? And mm-hmm. then they're sitting there unemployed, right? Or, or have mm-hmm. to take, you know, these low wage jobs. Is there an opportunity for, you know, your organization in the future, right? This is, we're mm-hmm. talking still far away here and, mm-hmm. you know, more fun, all these different things. But mm-hmm. is there a way that a curriculum can be made? It doesn't even have to be made, right? Because it could be actually the same curriculum. Mm-hmm. But for maybe older people that didn't have this ability when they were in school mm-hmm. of learning these type of skills. Yeah. You know, but they're 38, 39, 40, and they're like, I'm lost, right? Mm-hmm. I still have 25 years. I want to work. Like, mm-hmm. is there is there a roadmap for, for adults you see that could be wedged into to you guys' programs? Yeah, for sure. So that's what we're seeing with, like, a lot of the boot camps. So, right. you know, organizations like General Assembly, yeah. you know, Grace Hopper uh, Academy that's focusing specifically on, like, training women engineers. Mm-hmm. Um, General Assembly is gender neutral. Yep. But I think, like, these are the organizations that adults should look to um, in order to think about how they can retrain and then re-enter the workforce mm-hmm. with a new set of skills. Um, so there are a lot of adult um, coding camps and a lot of like yeah. adult vocational trainings, but I've seen a lot of them on the for-profit side and not necessarily on the non-profit side. That's, that's the thing. Yeah. yeah, I mean, people, 
and yeah. I'm still going to be able to afford to pay, you yeah. know, 20 grand or something to go to it's a, a boot camp is a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So what's the uh, what's the future like? So five years in. Yeah. A lot of success. Right. I mean, mm-hmm. a lot of learnings, mm-hmm. more data points to come, but you got a lot. Mm-hmm. What do the next five years look like for you guys? Yeah. So I think that by the time you publish this podcast, yeah. we will actually have another name. Okay. Uh, I can't necessarily tell you that, what that name is. Okay. <laughs> um, but we are rebranding right now. Okay. Um, in okay. the next uh, few weeks, we'll be making the announcement of what our new name is going okay. to be. Um, and we're actually piloting the program in another city. Okay. Um, and figuring out what the model that we built here in New York City can look yeah. like in, an, in another merging tech cub sure yeah that's great no so that's, that's where great. we're at right now that's um, awesome last year we did like a big um feasibility study and so 2019 2020 will be the kickoff of the next five years which is what we're really excited about but also like super scary stuff <laughs> how did you obviously we don't have to talk about the city yet but what what goes into that you know into like mm-hmm. choosing another city because yeah there's so many cities in mm-hmm. america that need something like this yeah <laughs> you know so how do you like maybe turn a city down maybe that wants this right or mm-hmm. you pick you choose the, the right one that works for you guys so how does that process work in choosing another city yeah so we um okay so with the consultants that we work with we basically prioritize a set of factors that would need to rank a city in a certain at a certain level in order for us to determine whether or not that's the right place for us the factors were degree of student need Mm -hmm. um, degree of diversity within the city Mm -hmm. um, degree of volunteer rates degree of um, uh, walkability and transportation and then uh, degree of charitable giving okay and so with those five factors there was like a lot of um, publicly available data that went into creating this prioritization tool and ultimately the data basically ranked the cities on a score um, on a scorecard that said this is the most feasible this is the less feasible and we just basically chose one of the top five cities to the to pilot That's uh, awesome. it was interesting because when we did it the highest ranking city was new york city. <laughs> so we're like great we, start, we started in the right place um we're, we're the top five mostly on the east coast and the south or with some on the west coast they're so. all big cities big cities yeah, yeah. the ones you would think of the ones you much. would think yeah. of for sure yeah um there was also like a second priority ranking where we actually um heavily weighted um, proximity to New York City in the okay. second rank um, where other cities that were not highly ranked in the first one um, actually came out higher because mm. of the fact that we prioritize like distance. Um, distance to New York more uh, which that was a pretty interesting analysis to see as well but I think one thing I'm realizing is that regardless of um, regardless of what the data shows there are things that are we're not going to be able to forecast for until we actually get there because the the study is true in the sense that it gives you like you know a pretty decent understanding of where you should go but there's so many like qualitative factors like culture Mm -hmm. and like Mm -hmm. you know politics that didn't Mm -hmm. go into the study that we would need to think about a little bit more because the the tech industry changes so fast have y'all found that you, you've able to kept the curriculum very similar or do you have mm. you had to pivot and change certain things because 
Yeah. Three years in technology is a lifetime, mm-hmm. right? And things could change drastically. No, we change this curriculum every single year. Yeah. Like every year. <laughs> that is such a amount. Like the summer months between like uh, ending of May through like ending of August, um, our curriculum developer, like that's all they're doing is collecting feedback from the year, leveraging the observations they did throughout the year in order to like develop new curriculum and preparation right. for the new school year. So right. it is a process. And it's crazy because all of the employers, like you ask them one question when you're like, what is the most useful? Right. Tool? right. It's like, <laughs> you literally said you were operating on React last summer. Why did you change to Angular? Like, why? <laughs> you know? <laughs> why didn't you run this through us first? <laughs> right. <laughs> and so it was, yeah, it's a process to create really high quality content. But we know that that is what we need in order to have our competitive advantage against yeah. other people. So Yeah. Do you see it's, there is a lot of competition out there? For this work, yes, there is a lot. There are a lot of organizations. Some of the, some of them are local. Some of them are national. Some of them are regional organizations. But I always say that for us, um, we don't see it as competition because mm-hmm. in New York City, there are one point one million kids in this yeah. system, and we're only working with a thousand of them. Yeah. Which means that there is this a significant is portion of them that are not being worked with. Which means that there are pathways for other people to think of. Much more inventive, creative models that yeah. might reach students that we're not currently serving. Yeah. So while I'm proud of the work that we've done, I also know that like the market for this in terms of like the degree of need, mm-hmm. like I don't even care how many organizations are, you know, in the in the space. I care that like the people who need to be served are getting okay, the services so, they need. Yeah. 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 Well, earlier you said that you had to kind of learn the nonprofit like yeah. how to become a nonprofit like all these mm-hmm. little things so how has how has fundraising been has that been a difficult thing to to assess mm-hmm. and every year you have to like raise money is that how it is or do you guys mm-hmm. have private donors that say hey we're dedicated to this for the next 10 years so you have a little bit of weight off your shoulders or is it every mm-hmm. year it's like we have all the stuff we have to do and we still have to fundraise. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because when we started, we thought we would just need to get money from individuals, right? right. Like we're just going to need to collect these yeah. donations. And as time passed, we realized we need to get smarter about this, yeah. especially if this is what we're going to like live off of as yeah. well yeah. Um, and create jobs for people on. So well, the way that we think about fundraising is, um, you know, what are the kinds of partnerships that we can engage in that are multi-year partnerships, mm-hmm. either with companies or foundations or individuals that will let us get to a certain threshold every right. single year that we know is going to help us out with sustainability. Mm-hmm. Um, and then who are the uh, people that can actually pay for our services and still keep the programs free for the students and the families? Does that mean we charge schools? Right. Do we charge the nonprofit organizations that we work with? Mm-hmm. You know, do we charge the companies in order to engage with us? Um, so at New York on Tech, we have earned revenue, which is like us um, charging for the services A we consulting, provide. Consulting. Yeah. So it's the, the services that we provide. Some companies are paying for, you know, like the internships. Some yeah. of them are paying for, you know, career days. Some of them um, are sponsoring students, scholarships nice. in the 
program. Yeah. Um, you know, there are certain foundations that we work with that give us three-year grants. So they'll give you like 125000 over the next yeah. three years. Um, and so it really differs, but it's never it's never been a situation where it's like, oh, we're in doubt forever. <laughs> yeah, no, of course no, not. Yeah. No more work <laughs> to be done here. Like, it hasn't been like that yet. But if someone's listening to this yeah, podcast yeah, if they want to, <laughs> and they want to, yeah, yeah. feel free to contact me. <laughs> What's the, uh, so do, do cities... Get, try to get grants from the cities. How has the city reacted to you guys? Do you, yeah. Do you go to policymakers and be like, this is needed in schools? Like, this is needed. Like, yeah. please don't, you know, allocate some funds for, for stuff like this. Yeah, for sure. So we haven't dabbed into, like, the, like we haven't dabbled into the policy portion of this. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Partially because we want to be mindful of, like, our own bandwidth. And right okay. now that is, like, not an expertise that sure. anyone at our organization has. Um, is it something that we can see ourselves doing in the long term? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in an ideal world, like we'd love for all schools all across mm-hmm. the country across the country to adopt our curriculums, to take our model and like establish it within their own institutions and get students paid for skills and become right. a lot more industry focused as opposed to just focusing on passing tests and state exams. Um, But I think we're trying to be very intentional about not doing things that we're not experts in yet. Sure. Um, And so I think in the future, we'll try more of that. I think the city has been really receptive to the New York on Tech program. Um, We do receive funding from public sector agencies, but we don't get funded by grants. So most Mm -hmm. of the public sector funds that we have is through earned revenue and service right. we provide as opposed to having applied for some grant that is going to fund us for like five years to do a program. Um, so we've, uh, we think that there's a lot of potential there, but oh, yeah. I think for us, um, you know, the public sector and trying to do things sometimes within the institutions because, you know, we... Um, haven't dabbled in policy before, we need to just wrap our heads around what that would actually mean for us and our staff. Yeah. Um, because we don't want to do things and then not do them well. Sure. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. I mean, this place that we're in, so we're in the Teach of America headquarters yep. in New York. And when you walk in, it's electric. Like, the creativity, mm-hmm. you could feel, like, mm-hmm. a lot of amazing things going on. How has organizations like that and other organizations that are here kind of co-created with you guys have they been mm-hmm. a great partner and just kind of hey maybe try this or try that i mean it's gotta be an advantage to be kind of here sure. and kind of get feedback yeah. from boots on the ground so to speak right yeah yes for sure really big shout out to teach for america because um they basically operate this co-working model for mm-hmm. local nonprofit organizations that That's are doing great. really great work mm-hmm. that many of the schools they partner with can take advantage of and many of their teachers um who are in the core you know can take advantage of as well in order to share that with their students and so really big shout out to them really happy to be here uh but you know teach for america is not the only organization that has supported us there have mm-hmm. been so many other organizations yeah. like you know general assembly i keep mentioning them, yeah but it's they're because great they've been yeah. a long-standing partner for us since um 2014 since we started um 
you know, really big shout out to Google that has yeah. helped us, you know, with our training programs. Um, there's there's so many organizations um, that have helped us. And it's so hard to, like, think about who they are right now. But no, yeah, there are I mean, lots. It's, it's really been a um, community effort. Yeah, and we, we, we haven't been able to operate in silos like that because of the fact that, like, we don't want to reinvent the wheel like we want to partner with organizations that have a certain level of expertise that we're still trying to learn from um and i think it would be extremely naive of us to think that like we could do this work alone um mm-hmm. because when you're working in community you shouldn't operate that way right um and even if it's us like helping other organizations tap into our talent pool you know there's some organizations in new york city that might not be um like coding specific organizations or tech specific organizations but might be running a one-day summit for girls in stem sure so we're able to like forward that application to our students and then our students participate in their programs and so it's all been a community effort and very collaborative and i'm and i think more of that needs to happen in Mm -hmm. this space in order for uh services to reach Lots of students, like you said, I mean, it's just New York. Feeling, like you're stealing my kids, and but it's just like, New no, York, like you silly. said, it's one million kids. So it's yeah, it has to be collaborative for effort, sure. Right? Like no one organization yeah. or company is gonna solve this problem. It's gonna be for sure. a lot of people, and that's only one city. For <laughs> you know, sure. that's not even yeah. you know. So I don't. I mean, I don't know how many kids in the country, right? But it's probably like. You know, 25, 30 million or something. I don't know. Like, it's in the United States that's in this mm-hmm. age range that could use and benefit something like this. So, it's going to be a massive effort from a bunch of organizations. Um, but I think you guys have set up a, a great foundation for the last question I would have is mm-hmm. for somebody who would want to maybe, you know, start a tech nonprofit, so to speak. What are because you had to go through the the grind already. You had to mm-hmm. jump all these hurdles and do all the wrong things mm-hmm. to find out how the right things to go. So what are what are some of the tips that that you can and advice you could give a person out there that might want to do something like this? Mm-hmm. Um, I would say design your program with the users in mind, mm-hmm. um, and the reason why I say that is because a lot of times we think we know what young people need. And so we create programs and services that we love because they uh, come from us, right. but we're not necessarily listening to the true pain points right. that young people are experiencing and the barriers that they're experiencing in their local communities mm-hmm. that not, are not allowing them to be great in some fashion. Right. And so if you're looking to establish a local tech nonprofit, I would say do the first thing that we did, which was disseminate the surveys to students mm-hmm. and figure out what is it that they're saying they want to learn about technology, what are they saying that are preventing them from learning these skills and how can you design your programs to solve those pain points as opposed to just bringing in curriculum and bringing in your ideas um, and then realizing like oh like the kids actually didn't want this Um, because you'll spend a lot of time thinking that you have solved the problem and then ultimately listen to your user and realize that they they didn't get the services they thought they were signing up for. What were some of the the ping points. Okay, definitely. Like, we'll ask question. Promise. Yeah, it's <laughs> fine. So the the ping points that you just mentioned, what were some of those? Like, yeah. what, what were students telling you guys that they wanted? Because that's mm-hmm. very very important, obviously. Yeah, 
lack of mentorship. Mm -hmm. So like not having enough people in their lives to talk to them about what tech is. Okay. Um, lack of opportunities to participate in paid internships. Okay. Um, but I think a lot of students said like, hey, you know, I've done internships, but it's all been like clerical, getting coffee, sure. maybe being like a camp counselor. Not learning anything. But not learning <laughs> anything. Um, and then three, the opportunity to develop deep technical skills mm -hmm. because some of the students um, in our programs, they've been trying to learn this content by themselves online. Right. So they go to Code Academy or Khan Academy, <laughs> right? Trying to supplement what their schools are trying to teach them and mm -hmm. they're realizing like, I'm actually hitting a wall. Right. Um, and so when we think about the barriers that we're alleviating for our students is one, developing their social currency in the industry mm -hmm. so that when they're leaving our programs, they can identify a number of software engineers that they can connect with or a number of designers and developers that they connect with, they can connect with and get their questions answered um, to pairing them with the employer partners mm -hmm. over the summer sure. so that they are reinforcing the skills they're learning in our programs and then three providing them with in demand like high quality content that they can say I learned this right. and these are the reasons why I'm able to develop a product ready uh, web application or product ready like mobile application sure. which I think that right now not many students can say they're getting that or as many of the students we're working with mm -hmm. are getting that from the places that you traditionally get these things from right. like their communities or their schools or sure. their families or the local YMCA or something or it's YMCA. not going to have something like this right well thank you so much thank like, you so is, much this is a great place I mean it's what you guys are doing is it's one of the most necessary things that our society society faces. I mean, it's yeah. it really is so necessary, and and I can't wait to to see.